was the Reformation pastor Martin Luther who said men are not made religious by performing certain actions which are externally good but they must first have righteous principles and then they will not fail to perform virtuous actions in the heart of a champion and welcome back to the Code of Man podcast this is Mike Barnett with you your solo host today for this edition of The Code of Man. And we're going to be talking today about what makes a good man and the, the combination of both being a godly man and a manly man. And is that even an, a possibility? And, and that's the topic of the discussion today. Where are the good men? Finding the good men in the church. I was very honored to be invited to speak at a men's meeting at the, uh, the church that our good friend Chris Cantrell pastors. If you've listened to the Code of Man podcast, you've heard Chris on here with us a couple of times, and uh, I appreciate him inviting me to speak at their men's meeting, and that's the topic that they have been discussing in their, their men's group is, is it manly to live a godly life, and can a godly man be a manly man? And so that was the topic that I was presented with, and I really enjoyed getting to go and talk about those things. And afterwards, I was actually on my way back home, and I thought to myself, this would make a great podcast episode for our Code of Man. And because this week, I happen to have a week where I don't have all of our regular cast of characters with us. Roland Napoleon and Easy Target are both off today. So it was a good time to fit that in. Finding the good men in the church. There's an old saying that a good man is hard to find, and that certainly may feel more and more true as we look at certain realms of society today, but by the grace of God, it should never be said when you're talking about the church. Our church and our churches should be the places where we find the greatest population of good men. Now, the Bible says that in Psalm 37, 23, which is one of the key texts for the code of man, 37 and verse 23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. As you look at that passage of Scripture, you see the components of what makes a good man. It's a man who, whose steps are ordered by the Lord, so he is a godly man. But he is also a good man, and that means something. Unfortunately, what I believe an honest assessment of men in the church reveals is that for a long time, what we have largely produced in our churches are two types of men. We've produced the, quote, nice guys, and then we've produced a lot of jerks. If you're around many church groups, church organizations, and activities, uh, that's a lot of what you find. You find the nice guys who are a little bit passive, maybe passive-aggressive, but they're just nice and they're overly trying to be the good guy. Or then you get the jerks, the guys who walk around arrogant, cocky, 
The question, can we be both manly and be godly? The fact that that question exists at all, I should say, demonstrates just how far we have fallen in our understanding of the true nature of God and his intended purpose of a man. The question that I posed when I was in the meeting the other night was this, not can godliness and manliness coexist, but I think perhaps a better question is to ask, can these actually exist exclusive one of the other? In other words, can there really be true godliness in a man's life if he is not a manly man? And can a man be truly manly if he is not also a godly man? And I think that means we're compelled to define some words, right? Godliness and manliness. And the word godliness is found 15 times in the New Testament. Nine of those are in 1 Timothy. So I thought, boy, what a, there must be a lot of good information there. And there is. Here's a letter where the Paul, the sage, the, the elder Paul, is instructing his younger and stronger and in the prime of life son in the faith, Timothy, and he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. And again in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 and 7, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. So in both of those passages... The word for godliness is the word eusebia, and it, it means piety and holiness. Well, now there can be a problem, too, because these are words, especially piety. We don't use that word a lot. What does that actually mean? So I'm defining a word with words that we may not understand, piety and holiness. Now, we talk about holiness a lot here on the Code of Man podcast. To be holy means to be whole, W-H-O-L-E, and that's God's intent. He's, he's making us. His intent is to make us whole as men. But I thought we'd go to our friend Webster and see what he said about godliness. Well, guess what he said? Piety. <laughs> but he goes on to say it's belief in God and reverence for God's character and laws. Now that helps us. And so the way I wrote out a definition of godliness and I presented the other evening was this. Godliness is simply a life in which our belief in God informs how we live in every way. I want to say it again. Godliness is simply a life in which our belief in God informs how we live in every way. So a godly man is a man in whose life God is not distant, and God is very much central to his life rather than his career being central or even his family being central or his church being central, and certainly uh, more than himself being central. Which, yes, I know is counterintuitive to culture today because from the time that we are we begin as little tea toddlers, we are being taught that we are the most important person in our universe. Well, friends, that's not what God teaches us. God is the most important person in our universe. And next to loving God, what's the second commandment? Love your neighbor, and then third, as yourself. So that's the order of godliness right there. God, my neighbor, or others, and myself. You know, Proverbs 3, 6 says, In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. And that really is a verse about what it means to be a godly person. It's to acknowledge God in all of our ways, every part of our daily life, and then to, to know and follow as God directs our path. 
Now, what about manliness? Manliness, then, the word manly is composed of the word man and the suffix ly, and that suffix ly means like. So the word manly is to, is to be manlike, or is to act like a man, to be as a man should be. Well, that leads us to the obvious next question. What is a real man like? And if I ask the question, what do, you, what do, what do we typically associate, uh, at least in our culture at large, what do we associate with manhood these days? And I know it's, it's changing some, right? It's the days of James Dean with the leather jacket and the motorcycle and the Marlboro cigarette, not as much the image of manliness today. In fact, it's almost kind of taken a pendulum swing to the other direction many times. And, um, you know, today it's almost become the skinny jeans and the sloppy look. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's all kind of weird stuff. But, but whatever it is, you know, whatever your thoughts are, it's trucks, guns, football, motorcycles, beer, you know, this is the stuff that's marketed to men. But when I look at older definitions of manliness, what I see, and if you look it up, you'll see the same thing, I see as a definition a list of certain qualities, qualities such as firm, brave, undaunted, dignity, boldness. This, this is scriptural. As again, the words of Paul tell us, 1 Corinthians 16, you know, verse 13 to 14, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. And then I like the second part of the second verse there, let all your things be done with charity. Now, right there, we're getting a picture of, of a truly good man. You see, the New Testament measure of a man is quite different than many in the church might think. The Christian man is not soft and effeminate. He's to be the essence of masculinity. And Paul says that, that a Christian man a godly man, a good man, is to be observant. That is, he's to be on guard, ever watchful of the enemy. He's to be a man of a code who knows what is worth fighting for, and he'll take a stand in faith. He's to be courageous, willing to face the hard things with resolve. He's to be strong, or in other words, empowered by his walk with God. And so if you listen to that, you see those, it, that, that, that verse of Scripture, it's, it's really just dripping with testosterone, vigilant, principled, courageous, strong. And yet, Paul says, do it all with love as the root and foundation of who you are. So there's that seeming paradox. And this is what sets the Christian man apart from the machoism of the world's men. But back to our problem at hand. Where then are the godly men? Because if you're going to find a godly man, you ought to find him in the church. Well, Psalm 12, verse 1, David, who was himself a very good and godly man and a very manly man, we often refer to David as the warrior poet. I have said to soldiers and different ones through the years, I would say, you know, David's a great example. He's a guy that would go out on the battlefield and take the enemy's head off, but he knew how to pray and worship God both beforehand and afterward. And he gives us all these wonderful psalms where he bears his soul, he shares his deepest heart, and yet this was not a man that uh, any man I know would want to tangle with, right? So he, he, he gives us both sides of that. It's not about machoism. It's about being ready and equipped to do what needs to be done for the right reasons at the right time. That's manliness. 
we'd have the pious men gone. That's what David is saying in Psalm 12, 1, when he writes, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. Where have the pious men gone, the, the godly men? And David, what he's doing, he's bemoaning the reality that when the pious men have all fallen, there seems to be no none stepping forward to take their place. And I know we romanticize historic figures. I, I get that. We, we tend to look back at 100 years ago and think, boy, that was glorious times. And had we been living, we might have seen the full picture of it, right? I, I understand we do that, but think for a difference, uh, just as some examples, the differences between 1960s NFL quarterbacks and the quarterbacks of 2022. I mean, it is a different level of toughness that is required. Not to take away from the guys that are on the field doing things I couldn't dream of doing as far as their athletic ability, their intelligence, uh, just sharp. And I mean, but I think they would even would say, hey, those guys back in the 60s, that was a different ball game. Those guys were getting nailed and slammed and they had to be tough, right? Not that that's the perfect example, just saying there's a downward trend in some of the masculine qualities being exhibited even in society. Think about 1860, the president that we had in Abraham Lincoln, at least what we know about him, a man with all of his faults and failures and certainly not a perfect man by any stretch, but compare that to 20th century presidents or 21st century presidents, maybe more aptly put. It's not not the same. There's a trending down in what we see in the men who lead. Think about the men of God in the 1900s. And I'm not just talking about, we use that term of men of God a lot to talk about preachers and evangelists. I'm not, I'm not using it that way. I'm talking about the men of God in the churches in the 1900s. Men who knew what it was to pray, to be strong, to work hard, to have faithfulness and commitment to God, family, their, their work, their country, you know, just men. And then look at what passes for Christian men today. And I don't, I don't want to throw stones, but I'm just saying you think about a, most people think about men in the church today and it's a caricature. You know, they're sleeping in the pew. They're more excited about the game than they are the sermon or the gospel mission. And dare I say it, they're poor examples physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. So you look at men as a whole in the church and you say, where are these godly men? It must not be very manly to be a godly man. Well, I got to tell you, when you see a guy sitting in the church pew, overweight, uncommitted, sleeping himself through the sermon, but he's going to shout the victory all night at the ball game, you're not looking at a good man. You're not looking at a godly and manly man. Now, we're not here to curse the darkness or spit into the wind. If there's a shortage of godly men, here's what I'm saying. The first thing that needs to happen is that every man listening to this podcast right now needs to start looking for that true place of repentance before God and beg for a truly manly heart. Repent in the scriptures is the word metanoeo. It, it is to think differently. It's to change the mind, to think differently, to begin to think as God thinks. It's to perceive the truth which changes our life and takes us from where we are to where we need to be. Paul says repentance happens by acknowledging of the truth in 2 Timothy 2.25. 
So what I'm saying to you is, is that we need to change our thinking about what it means to be a godly man. We need to get some truth in front of us about what being a godly man is, or to use the phrase from our text in Psalm 37, 23, a good man. But I want to say first that the same problem which has cost the church in the fulfillment of the Great Commission, and that is bringing the lost to Christ in the modern times, uh, that, that Great Commission is the same problem that has led to failing manhood in the church. It's the want of an example, the lack of an example. You see, we need more than words and talking about it. We need more than a podcast about it. We need action, modeling. We may hear a man. You may listen to me today as you listen to this podcast, and I'm talking about what being a godly man is, and you may or may not be convinced by my words. But if you and I were to begin to live as godly men and other men were to walk in daily life with us, then they will, they will know what it is and they will be persuaded. And so we must begin to live this and model this. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, Philippians 4, 9, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. And herein lies one of the obstacles that we have to overcome. Now, I want you to listen to me carefully. Men... And really, if a lady's listening now, it applies to all of us. But men, we doubt sometimes our capacity for real goodness. We doubt our chances of proving ourselves to be real men. And so what we do is we do like our father Adam and we hide behind the fig leaf. We pose, we pretend we turn to virtual life or vicarious living through our children. We turn to our movies. We turn to our toys because we're afraid to step up and actually face life as a man because we just might fail. Every, every man has to face that. The greatest battle of your heart, guys, is the battle that goes on inside of you. The battle to be a good man starts on the inside. We, we need to be convinced that we have what it takes to be good, godly men. You need to know this, and I believe this, that your capacity to be a good man and a godly man is far greater than you realize. <laughs> it is because of who you are. You are made in the image of God. And yes, we are fallen. Yes, we have our frailties, our foibles, but, but men, we are made to be the image bearers of God. Augustine wrote this. He said, Men go abroad to wonder at the heights of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motions of the stars. And yet they pass by themselves without wondering. What was he saying? He was saying the greatest work of God in creation was you. And that's what David meant when he wrote Psalm 8, and he said, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? But listen to the next verse. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Notice he didn't say, God, you made man just a little higher than the animals. He said, God, you made man a little lower than the angels and has crowned him with glory and honor. So before we look at what a good man is, we need to understand that in God's grace and work in our lives, we have the capacity to be good men. 
John Eldridge in his book Epic said this, I dare say we've all heard a bit about original sin, but not nearly enough about original glory, which comes before sin and is deeper to our nature. We were crowned with glory and honor. Why does a man hope to be found brave? Because we remember, if only faintly, that we were once more than we are now. As, as God's creation, we were once more than we are now. And gentlemen, we can be that again. We can be the kind of men that God expects us to be and will equip us to be. Genesis tells us that the pinnacle act of creation was God forming man, creating him in the image and likeness of his own glorious self. So again, we were made to bear his likeness. And in Edom, Adam and Eve, they lived the life that, truth be told, we only catch glimpses of now. I mean, they walked in fellowship with God. They experienced true romance. They found adventure every day, and their life was one of constant discovery. What excitement that would be. And yes, sin brought the ruin of this. And sin is our battle and our struggle now, but that was not the end of the story. For God, most glorious, offered redemption, and through his great love, we have the hope of returning to this glory. But here's the thing, we don't need to plop ourselves down on the couch or on the church pew and wait until the glorious redemption. No, God is wanting to make it happen now. The intersection of goodness, where godly and manly meet, is found in the deep heart of a man who has truly come alive in God. I believe that strongly, and so I want to say it again. The intersection of goodness, where good men are found, where godly and manly meet, it is found in the deep heart of a man who has truly come alive in God. So it is absolutely vital for us to understand how God put us together as men. In other words, we need to learn how to live from our hearts, and I know that scares a lot of men, but we can do it. From Psalm 37, we looked at verse 23 that said the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, but when I back up to the beginning of that psalm, I see examples of, of what a good man is or what it takes to be a good man. And so I just want to highlight a few of those things for you as we do this together today. When I come back to the beginning of the psalm, it says, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Here's that thing I'm talking about, the man that's fretting worrying, envies taking over his heart. Why? Because he believes he can never be, and he begins to despise those who are. That makes us into complainers and murmurers and bitter men. Look what verse 3 says. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. I want to talk about the importance of a good man's desire. You see, I mentioned, I said that we have to learn to live from our hearts. But for a really long time, we've been told that we have to kill desire. We have to push that away because obviously desire can only be coming from a bad place inside of us. After all, we all know the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Well, as we've said many times on this podcast, let's say again, there's just one problem with that. You see, when we believed on Jesus, we were given a new heart. And from that new heart should come new desires that are good. As I mentioned earlier, God's ultimate goal for your life is to make you whole and holy. He's interested in your body, mind, soul, 
spirit. All of you. The most meaningful gift that we have to offer to God is our heart. If our heart was bad and corrupt and useless and untrustworthy, then then how could we give it to God? The one who says to us, love me with all your heart. Seek me with your whole heart. My son, give me thine heart. So our heart has goodness to it when we are in Christ. Now we've got to trust that. I don't mean by that that we can always trust our feelings. I don't mean that we can always trust our intuition. But a heart that is aligned and affixed on the will of God, sure, your thoughts may not always be right. Your feelings may not always be right. Even your longings may not always be right. But the deepest, truest part of you, your heart, that's a good part of you. And and by the way, your heart is the best gift you have to give to one another. I need the heart of my brother's. I need them to engage with me from their heart. I need them to speak the deep truth of their heart into my life. And I need to share the deep truths of my heart into their life. We give our heart to each other. But in these days, like never before, I tell you, the heart has to be recovered because not that the heart goes bad, not a heart that Jesus gives us, but it it, it almost like it goes into the recesses. It kind of backs down into the shadows, sort of, because we live in this culture where we are just kind of eating up the world around us. We're consuming so much of it. That good heart inside of us, it has to recede back because we fill our souls with the things of the world. Well, we've got to change that. If we're going to be good men, godly men, we've got to change that. We've got to recover our heart and restore our heart, and only then can our heart be revealed. And that is truly lived from. So we must always be busy in the work of protecting our hearts. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Guard against the distractions. Guard against the things that dry up your soul. You don't need all those things filling your life, not if you're setting your heart on being a godly man and a good man. So a good man's desire matters. The second thing that we see is a good man's delight. He says, delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. These work together. But now seriously now, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you delight in God? Do you delight in God? Tell me what you are really excited about. You know, excitement is something that is seen and felt before it's heard. I can tell when I come around a group of people who won the big game the night before, and nobody even has to tell me. I observed this recently. I knew it because I saw the excitement in people. I observed the excitement long before I heard it. And the same thing is true in your life with God. If you're excited about God, it's going to show. People know what you delight in. Fellas, people know what you're actually excited about. And you can talk like, say you're excited about God all day long, but people that know you and are around you, they really know what excites you. Let me tell you something about David, the guy we're looking at here, the guy who wrote this. David was a man after God's own heart. You know what that meant? David was crazy about God. What are you crazy about? I mean, David danced in the street out of a joy for the Lord. What would it take for you to get out and dance in the street? What do you dance and act foolish over, quote unquote? And I know there's a lot of things, and they're good things. They they could be wonderful things. I mean, boy, when, when my children were born, I was pretty excited about that. 
I was crazy about them. You know, when, when your team wins a championship, you might be excited about that. Not that I'm categorizing those as equally important, of course. But I'm saying the things that matter to us, we get excited about. So how much does God matter to you, fellas? Do you delight in God? You know, one of the men that most impacted my life when I was about 20 years old and I was looking for the answers uh, to what was ailing me, and that man's name was John, and he was sort of one of these radical guys for Jesus. I mean, he would talk about the Lord Jesus. He would weep. He would raise his hands, not just in church, I mean, just in a conversation. He would sing for the Lord, not just in church, but in his day-to-day life. And I'll never forget a Sunday morning when I went to an altar there in the church to pray, just broken over myself, confused, in the bondage of sin, not right with God. And I knew that this brother, John, knew some things about how I was living. But he met me at the altar that day, and my fir- at first it was like a cringe, like, oh, he knows, he knows about me. But he put his hand on my shoulder, and he prayed with me, and then when we stood up, he hugged me, and the only thing he said directly to me was, I love you. And i got to tell you, that man's heart for Jesus made an impact on my life that day that 25 years later I have not forgotten. Oh, we need to delight in God to be good, godly, manly men. Let's talk about a man's dependence because he goes on to say, Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light and thy judgment as the noonday. A man's dependence, depending on God. And yet, in our Western American culture of swagger and machismo, we like to talk about our independence. I mean, let's face it, we love the rebels, don't we? We cheer for the guy who's going against the the grain, right? He's going against the expectations. He's supposed to behave a certain way, but he steps out against it. You remember the movie, A River Runs Through It? In that movie, the character played by Brad Pitt, his name was Paul, Norman McLean's brother, Paul. And you know, when you're a young guy and you watch that, everybody wants to be like Paul, right? Paul's rugged, he's good looking, he's tough. He catches the most fish, the biggest fish. He gets the girls. He wins the fights. He drives fast. He lives hard. He's edgy. But Norman, his brother, well, he's the dutiful son, the milder, more risk-averse, common-sense type. And so everybody looks at it and says they want to be like Paul. Paul is the anti-hero. But you know, the problem is it doesn't work out real well for Paul. You see, before the movie's over, and this is a true life story written by Norman McLean. You find Paul was beaten to death over gambling debts. Do you know why we love the lone wolves, right? Do you know why lone wolves are lone wolves? <laughs> they get to be lone wolves because they get driven out of the pack because they don't get along and, and work well with others. And by the way, lone wolves aren't long wolves their life expectancy drops tremendously. And as you look over the history of men who have lived without godliness and without true manliness, they might have been the rebel edgy type, I don't need anybody, they usually don't last long. Jesus is our ultimate example. So what do we learn about dependence from Jesus? Well, John 5, 19, 
Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he the Father doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Jesus taught us, and Jesus was the ultimate man. He taught us that we must depend wholly on our Heavenly Father. And, and, you know, I can say that, but, men, we must ask ourselves, do we really do that? Do we pray? Do we really seek and wait on God? Do we acknowledge him in all our ways so that he might direct our paths? And then in Mark 3, 13 and 14, I love this passage. It says that Jesus went up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him, and he ordained twelve that they should be with him. Jesus not only depended on his heavenly father, but he depended on these brothers. He depended on these other men. He said, I, I, I want you to be with me. We need each other, fellas. We don't need to be rugged, lone wolf, renegade types. We need to be brothers. We need to be brethren. We learn to depend on God and depend on one another, and that makes a godly and manly man. Now, I want to say one last thing. I want to talk about a good man's discipline. You see, David goes on to say, rest in the Lord, that's a discipline. Wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way. That's a discipline of moderation because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger. There it is. Temperance, right? That's a discipline. Forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any, any wise to do evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. What I mean by discipline are there are some ways, some habits that we need to be living in that help keep us close to God. So, fellas, what are the daily disciplines you are engaged in right now that are shaping you into a man? What are the daily disciplines you're doing right now that are shaping you into a godly man? And, and if you're doing it right, these things synergize. I mean, a, a, a good man who has the discipline of being faithful to go to work and do his job to earn his pay is the same man that's probably faithful to pray, seek the Lord. You could put those two things together. They work well together. They, they have synergy. So being a godly man is, is synergistic with being a manly man. You know, we can take anything that is a daily discipline in our life that is helping us be a better man, and we can consecrate that to God. You know, the Apostle Paul said, whatsoever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Do it for the glory of God. We can have synergy in that so that our daily disciplines, even in our daily walk and talk and our diet and our exercise and our work, all of it can be a part of developing our godliness. The truth is, we fail at being men because we aren't willing to work at being men. Being a man takes a lot of discipline. It's easy to be a 35- or 50-year-old boy, but it's not very fulfilling, is it? It's kind of empty. Why can't you, for example, step out on faith and go on the mission trip? Why can't you engage with your son about the topic of sex, pornography, or why can't you engage with your daughter or son on his or her cell phone use or their video game habits? It takes courage, doesn't it? And courage is built by discipline. Why can't you go after that type of work that you've always wanted to do, maybe even felt called to, but you just won't step out and go for it? Why? Well, remember what we said earlier. We sometimes just hide 
We try to hang out in the places that we feel most comfortable and least vulnerable. We might be called to do something else. There might be an opportunity that that we could go after and achieve in our life, but if it looks like there's a possibility of failing, I'll just stay over here. I'll just stay where I'm comfortable. Zig Ziglar, the uh, now passed on motivational speaker, once said, little men with little minds and little imaginations go through life in little ruts, smugly resisting all changes which would jar their little worlds. Well, that's something to think about, isn't it? I remember being at Airborne School back in 2008, talking about disciplines and how they can develop courage and, and help us to succeed. The first day that we, were, we went out to, to begin our training and learn how to do PLFs, parachute landing falls, and we were doing it in a gravel pit, just standing on the ground. We were learning to fall down just standing on the ground. But you got to learn how to land the right way, so you start at the ground level. And one of the things that they told us that day, one of the things they told us that day is when you exit the aircraft, you will make a crisp count 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, and then you will look up to ensure your parachute has deployed properly. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I thought standing there that day very early in this training, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I am going to have just jumped. Jumped might be too strong a word. More like a casual, timid fall out the door of an aircraft. But I'm going to have just jumped out of an aircraft at 1,200 feet, and you think I'm going to remember to count to four? I mean, that was my fault. Really, it was. But on the day of the first jump, guess what happened? It worked. The disciplines of training took over. And after spending the first week doing ground training and learning how to count and then going up in those towers and jumping out of the towers on the zip lines, you know, from 30-some feet, you kind of get more used to it and you learn and you do that for, for two solid weeks. By the time you're leaving the aircraft, it's just second nature. You know, we develop, we replace bad habits by developing new and good habits. And that's very important. What are the disciplines that you're practicing right now as men to change your life? Adam Clark, the Bible commentator, said something that, uh, that I read a couple of weeks ago that has stuck with me, and I've repeated it many times. He said, habit is a species of slavery. The question we have to ask ourselves is, who do we want to be enslaved to? Do we want to be enslaved to fear, or do we want to be enslaved to courage? Do we want to be enslaved to just living the timid, quiet, unfulfilled life? Or do we want to enslave ourselves to the bold, fulfilling will of God, living in the kingdom of God as godly men and good men? What are your righteous principles today that are guiding your life as men? Well, I hope that if you don't have them, you're beginning to identify them. And if you do have identified them, that you're living by them. We'll look forward to being back next time. And until then, have a great day. There is a fire And the flames are controlled By burning desire To be the best you can be So everyone will see He lives, He
In the heart of a champion 